This podcast is sponsored by Trust Impact. If you're struggling to find clear and easy to understand ways to measure and communicate the difference your charity makes, why not see if Trust Impact could help? Trust Impact puts impact at the heart of your strategy by sitting alongside charity chief executives and senior leadership teams to provide high quality strategic advice, proportionate research, beautiful data visualizations, and a really pragmatic, straightforward approach to impact measurement. Visit trustimpact.com to find out how Trust Impact can help you focus on your core purpose, measure what matters, and build trust with your beneficiaries, staff, and funders. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Stephen Delahunty, Senior Depositor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing Extinction Rebellion. So, as we were sitting down to record this, uh, Stephen revealed that actually he's taken part in Extinction Rebellion protests in the past. So, uh, yeah, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, as a disclaimer, I should say that I'm, you know, I'm a supporter and I've been involved in some of their actions in the past. I stayed most of the night once when they were camping on sort of London Bridge and in the first protest around, was that 2019, when they shut London down for like two weeks? So, yeah, I was quite active in that fortnight. And the whole movement at that time was a sort of positive, empowering group to be around in those two weeks. Felt like there was a real sea change in, in, in thought at that time. Um which obviously hasn't really got very far at the moment. But mm. um, yeah, maybe that makes me a good person to have this conversation with because I'm also a hypocrite because I don't <laughs> believe in personal environmental responsibility. Um, I think that's all the nonsense. And I mean, I do recycle, but, you know, I just don't rinse my plates before I put them in the dishwasher. Um, and I don't feel like I should feel guilty for not for not doing so the big systematic change needs a lot more bigger solutions than that doesn't it yeah there are there are a lot of arguments that that actually you know we can do what we can but actually the massive amounts of carbon in the atmosphere are not going to be changed because you recycled your yogurt pot into the right bin Uh, but you probably should recycle plastics but yes there is a limit to what the individual can do so yeah so tell us a bit more about extinction rebellion then Environmental protest group founded in 2018 and they spent the past two weeks engaged in some large scale protests around London and the rest of the country as well. They've been, you know, they've been protests in other cities up and down the country um, to a small extent, but you know, they're known for their focus on civil disobedience and direct action and mass destruction and basically just demanding a complete end to all investments in fossil fuels. Right. And the latest protests had two focuses. The first was on occupying spaces in London, such as Tower Bridge, Covent Garden and Oxford Circus to hold what they were calling crisis talks, to engage with members of the public in sort of discussions about sort of solutions to the climate crisis and and what was going on. The second was on disrupting financial institutions such as banks, which the movement sees as being the key instigators of fossil fuel projects. And as you were saying, they're calling for an end to all new investment in fossil fuels. So uh, between August 23rd, when the protest started, and Saturday 3rd of September, when I think they nominally ended, but are still kind of still are ongoing, 508 people had been arrested over their role in the protests. Uh, but another smaller protest outside London caught our eye. And uh, this was something you covered for Third Sector last week, Stephen. So why was that particularly interesting? Well, I think the organisation that the activists were protesting against wasn't a bank or an oil company or you know, government policy, it was the wildlife charity, the WWF. So protesters who were from the Extinction Rebellion Cambridge Youth Group, as well as an organisation called WTF, 
WWF, which is a group that claims the charity has taken part in the evictions of hundreds of thousands of indigenous peoples from their ancestral homeland for the purposes of conservation. The protesters also accused the charity of acting in the interests of its ecocidal corporate donors, which is quite strong words. And the group shared images on Twitter showing more than a dozen protesters sitting near the entrance of the charity's headquarters in Woking. Some of them are wearing panda masks and holding up signs that appear to be covered in blood. Now, a spokesperson for the charity said, you know, they value the dialogue and they will collaborate on, you know, the issues which are complex, but it found, it also found the protest at its UK headquarters to be disappointing. The spokesperson said, we share the same ambition to protect our world tackle climate change and ensure a future where people and nature thrive. Communities are at the heart of our work and as a global organisation we will continue to strengthen how we embed human rights into nature and conservation everywhere we work, including in the most challenging areas of the world to safeguard communities and the nature upon which they depend. This is really interesting. So we've got a charity that nominally is, you know, about conservation and supporting the environment being uh picketed effectively by um, a, a group of environmental protesters. And uh, yeah, as a side note, actually, long-term readers or long-time readers of Third Sector will probably remember my former colleague, Susanna Birkwood, uh, who used to be uh, the fundraising reporter on Third Sector. Uh, she actually went to work for WWF International. Uh, so actually, I haven't, I haven't spoken to her since to find out if she was in the, um, uh, in the headquarters when this protest was going off. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. But yeah, so Stephen, what do you make of this? I guess... On the one hand, you know, there's part of the WWF comment which I think is interesting, which suggests they're disappointed as if they're almost above criticism regarding the climate debate because they're a conservation charity. But, you know, I don't think anyone is above criticism, really, if we're going to have a serious discussion about it. I mean, you know, how many charities publish the, the, the carbon footprint? Everyone should be able to engage with this in a serious way without feeling threatened. In this case, the charity was accused of, well, in there with, you know, an alliance with fossil fuel industries or kicking, kicking people off the land. So there are a number of articles from other organisations like Corporate Watch or in BuzzFeed over the last couple of years that showed how WUF funded paramilitary, you know, paramilitary groups that kicked, kicked all the populations off the land under the guise of conservation. Um, or, you know, in 2019, they were forced to disclose how much of the charity's total revenue came from large corporations, which was only 4%. But, you know, three million pounds. But if every, if every big conservation charity is accepting three million pounds from fossil fuel companies or big corporations that are having, you know, a negative impact on the planet, then, you know, where do you end up drawing the line between like greenwashing and genuine philanthropy? Do you know what I mean? The, the, so I don't know where that is. Is that a financial amount? Like, you know, what is the answer? So yeah, I think this, this debate about kind of partnerships with, with fossil fuel companies and corporate partnerships that are, are intensely problematic is a really interesting debate. And I think, interestingly, Extinction Rebellion were also protesting outside the Science Museum because one of their um, exhibitions was sponsored by Shell, I believe, as well. Uh, so it's so a similar note. I agree with you about kind of protests making a lot of noise and being a pain and getting on everyone's nerves. That is the point of them. And yes, they cause disruption. That's the point. Um, and yeah, there was a really good piece in, in the FT actually about Extinction Rebellion and the kind of the, it's a really good, funny piece, but the writer kind of finished up by sort of saying, well, you know, yes, Extinction Rebellion are annoying, but so is the beep that my smoke alarm battery makes, uh, when the battery's running low, it's really annoying. And that means that I change it to stop it being annoying. And yeah, that, that's, that is the point. Um, I do think on the WWF front, though, because this protest seems to be specifically about kicking people, uh, the, the indigenous people's rights, which I think is really important. 
But it does feel like a little bit of a dilution of the the Extinction Rebellion message, right? That, it, you know, it may well be that WWF has some questions to answer there. It may well be that people feel justified in protesting it. I think one of the things that was so appealing about Extinction Rebellion at the beginning was they had this really clear, direct message, which is you need to sort out the climate crisis and you need to do it now. And yes, they did have a focus on being equitable and fair. I'm not sure that when you're saying there is a huge emergency here and we need to sort it, that also going to protest WWF about this specific issue as part of the same protest is is helpful. Like it feels like a little bit of a dilution of the message in that sense. I I, I don't mean that as a criticism. I just I, I think it's an interesting choice. And I and, and it does come back to this whole, as we'll get onto later, this kind of model that um Extinction Rebellion has that is kind of quite dilute and diverse and, and diffuse in its power making, its decision making structures. I don't know how helpful this protest was to their core aim of ending fossil fuel investment, because it seemed to be about this human rights issue, which is incredibly important and doesn't, you know, absolutely entitled to protest that. I just, I wonder if if it wasn't the best move, particularly. But yeah, so in the past, Third Sector has covered Extinction Rebellion. And, and they're this really interesting group because they're not a charity and they have no desire to be one. And in fact, they've often expressed some really strong opinions about where they believe the charity sector as a whole has failed. So like you were saying there, all these issues around investment in fossil fuels and around um, investment from fossil fuel companies in charities. And our first uh, issue back after our relaunch in 2019 featured an interview with Tim Crosland, who was one of the founders. And he told our editor at the time, Andy Hillier, that he believed established environmental groups and NGOs had lost their way and that they were replacing activism with chasing donations. And the technique they used, he argued, have become tired and tarnished and their messages too simplistic. So he and Extinction Rebellion as a whole have called on charitable organisations to be more radical. And after initially being a bit hesitant, a number of the more established environmental charities, such as Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, have voiced their support for the group. Although in the case of Greenpeace, it was only after Extinction Rebellion protesters occupied their building, uh, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and I think... um... Like you say, it is interesting that um, some of the charities have, have voiced their support after protesters occupied, you know, only after they occupied the building. And I think I do agree, for the most part, what you said at the start about it is a dilution of the earlier message that they had when they first started out. But, you know, in in fairness, I also think that the, they've had quite a radical approach and it has had a lot of success. You know, if you're her a national level and at a local government level, you know, many other institutions and organisations are now accepting the idea of a climate emergency. And that's a phrase that was very much brought into the public consciousness by Extinction Rebellion. You know, there's been a huge surge in public awareness of climate change mm. um, as this, you know, huge pressing emergency issue since the protests began a few years ago. And I think that has helped drive the government's commitment to reach net zero carbon emissions by 20, you know, 2050. But unfortunately, there have been some very public misfires, you could say, which, again, comes down to how the organisation is structured, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail. But, you know, for example, blockading trains in, you know, predominantly working class areas of East London, um, when people are just trying to get to work, obviously didn't go down very well. And, you know, if you're trying to make a point about climate change, maybe stop on public transport as opposed to say, you know, private transport is not the way to do it. So, yeah, at the same time as being quite radical, they've also... I think made a few bad decisions at the same time. Yeah. And as you say, it does come down to this very loose, collective, non-hierarchical structure they have. So there isn't a headquarters or a leadership or like a central decision-making team. 
which is great as an ideal and, and, and a kind of this sense that it's just people rising up and rebelling against a system which is damaging the planet and, and, and is damaging to those of us who happen to live on the planet. But it does mean, I think, that sometimes people are going to make choices that aren't that productive or helpful to the overall mission and have consequences that haven't been fully thought through. So, like, I can see with the occupying Greenpeace's officers that they're saying, you're not being radical enough. You need to do more on this fossil fuel message. Maybe WWF is a slightly different kettle of fish. And as you say, blockading the trains didn't necessarily help them. But despite all of that, I think there may well be valuable insights for the charity sector, you know, including one that's been made several times by Extinction Rebellion and others, that whatever your charity does, whoever it supports, climate change is going to affect you because it affects everyone. You know, rising sea levels and increased droughts will mean people will be forced to move. We're going to have more refugees, more conflict. That is going to lead to rising demand and increased number of people needing charity support globally and within the UK. Yeah, and I think, you know, you see evidence of this in the sector with you know, even organisations like the National Trust announced, I think it was last week, that they're preparing to change the way they work to cope with the predicted higher temperatures. They announced they're going to introduce Mediterranean shifts for employees working on, you know, some of their sites during the summer months in response to how warm, you know, the weather is getting in the UK when it is actually hot. And staff and volunteers will start earlier, finish later, maybe take a longer break. In the event of such extreme temperatures, which, you know, is probably a policy we can all get behind, really, in in most industries. But, you know, the Trust also said at the same time, it expects climate change to also change visitor behaviour, with things like more visits in the autumn and spring as temperatures increase. And it said it plans to create more shade over its outdoor seating areas. And it warned that if carbon emissions are not reduced, then its homes and indoor tourist attractions could be forced to temporarily close more often due to excessive heat and storms. You know, and it may be that we do see charities being prepared to become more radical in the wake of the Extinction Rebellion protest. As you say, climate emergency is a phrase that, that's come into current coinage, current usage because of Extinction Rebellion. And yeah, maybe charities become more radical. Yeah, I think, well, obviously there's one thing that, that sets Extinction Rebellion and the cause apart is the willingness of its protesters to be arrested, which is a tactic that, you know, many organisations in the charity sector may have some concerns about. But in our interview from 2019, Crossland, a former lawyer, argued charities will be able to justify allowing members of their staff to be arrested and cited the idea that you're allowed to break the law if it is necessary in extreme situations. For example, if your neighbour's house is on fire, you can knock down the door to rescue them. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, which is um, a good metaphor as well for the climate crisis, maybe. It's like putting a fire out by pouring more fire onto it sort of thing, isn't it? But, yeah. So anyway, staff, you know, although staff who might get arrested end up in court and be found guilty, he said, in terms of your charitable constitution, you can say this is what we need to do to discharge our charitable purposes. That is entirely consistent with the law, which is, you know, quite a fun idea to be put into practice, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that charities could justify going, you know, having their staff go and be arrested because, yeah, our job is to change things. So... We're out here trying to change things. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. And um, yeah, could be could be really interesting. Just a thought, if anyone's listening, fancies being arrested, uh, let us know. We'll cover it. <laughs> uh, I think the other thing that's really interesting about Extinction Rebellion is, is this notion of being a collective and a movement where supporters can join directly in on the action may well be something that charities need to consider in the future as part of this idea about disintermediation, which is you know, a conversation, as we've said before, that a lot of fundraisers are having at the moment 
So it's this notion that you know, particularly younger people don't see the need for a charity or an organisation to take action on their behalf. When you can send money around the world, you know, through crowdfunders or whatever, they, they don't really want an intermediary to help them do good. They want to be involved in it themselves. In an opinion piece they wrote for us the other year, Extinction Rebellion said that it sees itself as, quote, a model based on decentralised empowerment, which it argues has the potential to spread much faster than conventional top-down structures, such as large charitable organisations. So if charities can find a way to move to or mimic this kind of structure and create this kind of empowerment for those people who are their supporters, they may be able to access greater support in the future and possibly affect greater change. On the impact of Extinction Rebellion, the, there was a really interesting piece in The Guardian over the weekend, which asked, you know, whether the campaign group had lost its momentum. And the article pointed out that the, the number of activists on protests has been less, um, media coverage has been far more critical, and apart from, you know, Green Party politicians, not really many others across the political spectrum have paid, you know, any attention. It also quotes one activist who highlighted the fact that the most significant XR-inspired piece of legislation making its way through Parliament is the Police Crime, Sentencing and Court Bill 2021, a bill that seeks to severely curtail protest by effectively making it illegal to be too noisy and create too much of a disturbance on a protest. But other activists in the piece quoted say, yes, the movement has gotten smaller, but it's also stabilising and getting stronger. Yeah, and I, I do think the drop in numbers actually kind of makes a bit of sense post-pandemic. I think people are still wary of mass gatherings. I don't think anybody does want to, in the middle of a pandemic, go and hang out in the middle of London for three days. You know, so, so you can see why people might be a bit hesitant. So yeah, as you say, the, the, the police and crime courts and sentencing bill... Yeah, is is this bill that I think a lot of charities are very worried about because it is going to curtail free speech. And it does suggest that on some level, depressingly, you know, it's working. These these protests have been inconvenient. I remember when I was Vox popping, um, I think I was on Waterloo Bridge or Vauxhall Bridge for the Extinction Rebellion protest. There was this this man walking past shouting at police officers going, why aren't you arresting these people? Why aren't you arresting them? They're, they're causing a delay. And the police were kind of like, well, actually, they've got a right to protest. They've got a right to do that. And, and they should they should have a right to do that. And it does seem that this is, there's some anecdotal evidence to suggest that this is being policed more more officiously, perhaps, than it, or more fiercely than, than previously. Um, and that, yeah, that obviously, we're going to have this bill that's going to come in and potentially really curtail all protests, not just Extinction Rebellion. And I think that's that's really quite scary. Um, but I do think there is this sense as well that a potential loss of interest from the media and the public is actually a sign to an extent that Extinction Rebellion has been successful in having an impact. Their tactics aren't as shocking and attention grabbing this time round. But also, you know, like you said earlier, far more people are aware of and concerned about the notion of the climate emergency than before they started. And perhaps one of the most optimistic readings available is that it may well be that Extinction Rebellion has pushed open a door that environmental charities and other organisations can now walk through to create real policy change. That, you know, Extinction Rebellion has acted as a catalyst for greater and more radical progress than would have been possible otherwise. You know, ultimately, they're a lot like the mutual aid groups that have sprung up during the pandemic. You know, they're an alternative way of doing things that seems completely antithetical to the charity model and seems to bypass it, but can actually work alongside and intermesh with the charity model to get the outcome everybody wants. Yeah, I think what you're saying is right. The fact that maybe that the tactics aren't that headline grabbing anymore is because, you know, they've already changed 
you know, the debate and the window of debate on this topic already. The fact that Bill came into criminalised protest that make you know makes it a bit bittersweet. But hopefully, you know, we've got the UN Climate Change Conference in November, COP26, which the UK is hosting. And I think it'll be interesting to see if we do see any really radical policy decisions coming out of that. I think at least in small part, it will be down to some of the actions of Extinction Rebellion. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. So this week we've got, it's not its not really a quirky news story, but I think it is, it is really positive. Uh, so this is uh, a new charity being added to the Disasters Emergency Committee. I'm sure, as I'm sure listeners will know, DEC, the Disaster Emergency Committee, is a group of charities, uh, so was 14, now 15 charities, who come together when there is a massive disaster that requires a large-scale response. So it tends to be kind of natural disasters like earthquakes and famines or conflict-related disasters such as the Rohingya crisis. And you know, obviously more recently we've had a, a COVID emergency appeal that they've put out and they put on these appeals, come together so that they're not replicating the work, they're just speaking with one voice to the public saying, we need the money to help solve this problem. And, you know, I think they're a really good example of kind of collaboration in the sector. And the fundraising sector has been talking about collaboration for years. And actually, this this organisation has just been getting on with it and providing a really interesting model for what it looks like when charities work together for, for years and years. So the latest member is the International Rescue Committee UK. Um, they've become the 15th member, so they're joining charities like Oxfam GB, uh, Christian Aid, Islamic Relief, Save the Children UK. And their chief executive, Melanie Ward, said the move would put the charity in a stronger position to respond to future crises. She said this comes at a critical time when the devastating combination of conflict, economic turmoil caused by COVID-19 and climate change is seeing an increase in humanitarian needs globally and a record number of displaced people. Coming together with the incredible organisations that are already members of the DEC will make their shared humanitarian efforts stronger and their impact greater. And yeah, I just think this is a really positive story. Um, I have a you know huge soft spot for the DEC and the model of collaboration they offer. So yeah, great news to hear that that is expanding and we've got another fantastic international charity getting involved. That's all from us. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Stephen Delahunty. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.